Would you pray again with me? Father, we want to worship you by the way that we listen to and respond in our hearts to your word. We want to worship you alone during this sermon. Help us to worship you in righteousness as we listen to this sermon. God, I pray that you would cause your word to come forth in such a way that we really would have a sense that you are among us, that we really would have a sense that it is God who is speaking to us through these words. God, I pray by the grace that is available in Jesus that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you. We pray this to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we offer you these prayers in uh, the name of Jesus, the only mediator, the only way we could come to you. Amen. Would you please open your Bibles to Revelation 2? And this morning we continue our look at the messages Jesus sent to seven first century churches in Asia. And these letters are found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Pastor Dan is uh, being given the privilege this morning of preaching at Living Hope Bible Church in Mansfield, a church we planted about five years ago, or closer to four. Um, so if, if your mind wanders listening to me, maybe, maybe start to pray for him and them down in Mansfield. And then pay attention quickly. <laughs> in Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John sees a vision of Jesus, risen and exalted in glory. And then Christ commissioned John to write all of the things that he would see and hear to all of these seven churches. And we've already heard some of what the Spirit says to the churches through Christ's words to the church in Ephesus and also Christ's words to the church in Smyrna. And this morning, we'll hear what the Spirit says to the churches, I think including ours, through Christ's words to the church in first century Pergamum. As Christ addresses the church in Pergamum, we'll see Christ desires a church of faithful witnesses that is pure, a church that will not compromise with the world or with false teaching in the church. Christ desires a pure church, not a fellowship of believers that has unrepentant moral compromisers fitting comfortably in the mix. Now, all seven of Christ's letters in Revelation 2 and 3 to the churches follow the same basic pattern. They all have a very similar form. And so you should notice that the outline of today's sermon is very similar to those previous sermons in this series. For starters, Christ's words to the seven churches always begins by addressing the angel of the church. And these angels are heavenly representatives of these churches on earth. And by opening his letters in this way, Christ calls to each church on earth as if it is part of the assembly gathered around him in heaven, where saints and angels praise him. 
And the Christians in Pergamum, like Christians everywhere, need to remember their citizenship and reward is in heaven and not on this earth. And so Jesus begins his word to Pergamum uh, in this way and then follows that introductory phrase, as we have come to expect, by speaking, first of all, about himself. If you look at verse 12, you'll see that he begins this address with a word about himself. Look at that word about Christ in verse 12 now. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And later in this same letter, down in verse 16 of chapter 2, Jesus refers to this weapon as the sword of my mouth. And this description of Christ comes from the vision of the exalted Christ that John saw back in chapter 1 of Revelation. John saw that in 1.16. From Christ's mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength, which you can't even bear to look at. Now, to see Christ wielding a sword represents the judgment he's bringing on the earth when he comes. Jesus, you should know, is, as he said, gentle and lowly in heart, and he invites sinners to come to him for rest and forgiveness. But Jesus has also said that he will come to sinners in righteousness to judge and make war. To see Christ's sword as sharp, And two-edged represents the effectiveness of his judgment. No matter which direction this sword is swung, it always succeeds. It always makes its intended cut. So the judgment Jesus will bring when he comes will cut right through any defense that any man or any devil could possibly throw up against him. And to see this unstoppable sword is coming from the mouth of Christ represents him inflicting judgment on the earth by speaking, simply by means of his words, or we could also say by means of his breathing, by his breath or spirit. The words of Christ create, among other things, judgment, and that judgment is carried out by his Spirit, just as the words of a man are always carried by the breath of a man out of the mouth of that man. The judging power of Christ, then, is like the power of God we see in creation. When God spoke and it came to pass, He said, let there be light, and boom, instantly, there was light. So, too, when our Lord Jesus comes, He comes just to speak a word of judgment on the earth. And instantly, it will be so by the power of His Spirit. Do you remember that the Bible teaches that Christ upholds the universe by the word of His power? So right now, even as you sit here, the universe continues to be. Your life continues to be simply because the Lord Jesus continues to speak and say that it is so. And so if the universe is upheld by the word of his power, then likewise, the judgment of the wicked that is coming will come about simply by the word of his power. 
2 Thessalonians speaks of the judgment that will come on all those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It says this judgment is coming on those who did not believe the truth, but rather had pleasure in unrighteousness, on those who refused to love the truth and be saved. In chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, especially hones in on one who's the leader of this worldwide rebellion against God. He's called the lawless one. And verse 8 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians describes the judgment that will come from Christ's mouth on the lawless one. It says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. At the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, we read about the end times judgment of God, which Christ brings in his second coming. And this judgment is carried out by the sword of Christ's mouth. Revelation 19, 11 John sees heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful in Truth and in Righteousness. He judges and makes war. And then in verse 16, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And then down in verse 21, we read Christ actually doing this thing. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. When our Lord Jesus returns to save his saints and to set up his kingdom, he will come speaking words that are weapons of divine vengeance. And they will perfectly accomplish divine justice. Now this image has precedent, first of all, in the Old Testament, as almost everything in the book of Revelation does. Uh, We read Isaiah 65, Brother Ra did, to begin our worship service, and we heard at the end of the wolf and the lamb lying down together. You remember that? In a new heavens and a new earth, and that symbolizes the peace that will reign there in the absence of death, in the absence of suffering. Well, how does this new heavens and new earth where peace and righteousness reign come about? Where sin and death are gone? Well, it comes about in part by the judgment that God's king will bring. Isaiah prophesied much about when Christ would come. And the Christ means anointed one. The Christ is the spirit-anointed king of God who was promised from the lineage of David. And this spirit-anointed king will judge the nations, Isaiah prophesied, by the rod of his mouth. Isaiah 11, a passage we love to read at Christmas, at least uh, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's family tree, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So he's called the Christ And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Okay, what will be the result of this judgment and subsequent reign of this promised king? That's where Isaiah 11 goes next. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. 
The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den, and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him, the Christ, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Doesn't it sound glorious? This is a picture of the world with the curse of sin removed. The curse that came upon creation due to man's sin in the Garden of Eden. Nothing accursed will be in this new heavens and new earth when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. And this will come about after and because God's King, God's Christ comes to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and kill the wicked with the breath of his lips. What is the church of Pergamum to make of this? Well, this truth about Jesus should have been tremendously encouraging, among other things, for the church in Pergamum. First of all, it reminds them that things won't always be the way that they are. Are. This church was suffering big time. Do you find it hard to be a Christian sometimes in the world? It will not always be this way. This picture also should have encouraged them because the sword that was easiest for them to see at that time was the sword of the Roman government, which was pointed at them. And it's as if Christ introduces himself by saying, don't be troubled by the sword of Caesar that is pointed at you. Remember the sword of Christ that is coming on the world. And though you are persecuted now, your faith in me will be vindicated. No one who hopes in Christ will ever be put to shame. And so you may be tempted to think otherwise sometimes, but you would not want to be on the world's side. Compromising with the world will not ever be worth it because Christ comes with words like a sword. Though this church was under the threat of Caesar's sword, the Christians in Pergamum were, by and large, being faithful to Christ. And we read about that in verse 13 where Christ gives a word of commendation. Look at verse 13 with me now. I know, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so the bright light of their faithfulness is especially highlighted by the darkness all around them. And Jesus even frames his word of commendation uh, in this way, with a double mention of Satan's activity in Pergamum. Verse 13 begins and ends on that same note. At the beginning of the verse, you dwell where Satan's throne is. The end of the verse, you live where Satan dwells. Well, what could that mean? Uh, Pergamum was well known for having several very significant temples devoted to various Greco-Roman gods. And Satan stands behind all false religion in the world. 
uh, idolatry is demonic. We know idols and, and false gods are actually no gods. Idols are nothings. But behind the worship of idols are demons. All, all idolatry is satanic. 1 Corinthians 10 teaches us. Perhaps most significantly uh, for identifying this city as the throne of Satan was the fact that Pergamum seems to have been the most important city, really in the whole province of Asia, for the worship of the Roman emperor, for seeing and worshiping Caesar as a god, and really refusing to participate in the worship of the emperor is often what led to Christians being persecuted during this time. So Satan is, idolat- is associated with idolatry in the New Testament. He's also very closely associated with the persecution of the church in the New Testament. So calling Pergamum Satan's throne and Satan's dwelling place also indicates there was especially heavy persecution of the church that was happening there. Well, this would be a very difficult place and time to be a Christian. And that is quite an understatement, isn't it? This is like literally, if, if there could be a literal place like this, Satan's backyard is where his throne is. And these Christians are not just passing through Pergamum. Uh, Jesus says, I know where you live. You dwell there. This intense threat of persecution is part of their lot in life, and they cannot run away from it in this life. And so the church in Pergamum needs to hear Christ tell them, I know where you live. I know things are bad there. I know some of you are being martyred. I know Satan is majorly active in your city. I know. Maybe you live in a household or work somewhere where it's difficult to be a Christian, even granted. Not, not to the same degree it was as for these Christians in Pergamum. Jesus knows your lot in life. He knows where you dwell, and Jesus does not forget any of his people. Jesus has not forsaken any of his people, even those who feel like they are in Satan's backyard. Jesus knows. Now, if none of that applies to you personally, perhaps you Know someone who lives or works somewhere where it is very difficult to be a Christian. Jesus has not forgotten that believer either. He knows where they dwell. And Jesus calls them still, like he calls you, like he called the church in Pergamum, to be a faithful witness in the midst of it. So despite the satanic idolatry all around them and the satanic persecution that came when they refused to participate in that idolatry, the church in Pergamum is commended by Christ for holding fast to the name of Christ. They have not denied their faith in Christ. And they did not deny the name of Christ even when one of their brothers was killed for his association with that name, Antipas. Now, I love the way that Christ talks about Antipas in this verse. He calls him my faithful witness. And Christ bestows great dignity and honor on Antipas in describing him 
in this way? Because this title is actually used first in the book of Revelation to describe Christ himself, the faithful witness, back in chapter 1, verse 5. So imagine, just imagine the experience of Antipas to go in one moment from seeing a Roman soldier about to brutally end his life and immediately after, in the next moment, seeing Christ his Lord and hearing him say, well done, you are my faithful witness. When you hear Christ talk about Antipas like this, don't you want to live in a way that Christ could say that about you? To speak concerning you, that one is my faithful witness. Striving to be a faithful witness of Christ and for Christ is the responsibility of all Christians. And to be a faithful witness for Christ means first and foremost, publicly identifying with Christ. Not just wearing a cross necklace under your undershirt. Publicly identifying with Christ and continuing to do so, no matter the consequences. It means giving verbal testimony, like a witness in a courtroom. Verbal testimony, actually speaking to people that Jesus is Lord and forgiveness of sins can be found in His name. Did you notice how the same verb is used at the beginning and end of verse 13? These Christians dwell where Satan dwells. One commentator uh, draws this helpful conclusion. Light and darkness cannot dwell together in peaceful coexistence. Therefore, a witnessing church will be a persecuted church. That's true, isn't it? Uh, If the church in Pergamum was quiet and compromising about their faith in Christ, then living near Satan's throne probably wouldn't cause that much of a problem for them. So maybe, before you go thinking that this actually has very little to do with us, remember that there's a sense in which the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, First John tells us. So something about Pergamum's experience should resonate with our own, the life of our church. Uh, you know, there are a lot of passages in the New Testament about the suffering and opposition that Christians face in the world like this one in Revelation 2. And these passages would probably become a lot more meaningful to us personally if we would become more faithful witnesses in the world. Like Antipas, the rest of the church in Pergamum is in the main, faithfully holding on to the name of Christ. They won't let go of it. They won't deny Christ. And so Christ commends them for this. And we too, by God's grace, can faithfully endure any opposition of the world or rage of Satan as we seek to be faithful witnesses. And we can do this in part if we remember that Jesus is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And we sing about that in our church. Did you know that? About this victory Christ will win over Satan by his word 
And then we sing about the perseverance that, that remembering that should create in us and the triumphalism that we should have as we cling to and testify uh, to His truth. We sing, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him, shall make him fall. Even as the church in Pergamum courageously refused to deny the name of Jesus, there were a few things happening in this church which were not commendable. And those whom the, Lord, whom the Lord loves, He reproves and disciplines. And so Christ brings to this church a needed word of correction. And you'll see a word of correction in verses 14 and 15. Look there now. 14. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So Jesus rebukes this largely faithful church, first of all, for this. You have in your church some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, that is pejorative. I doubt very seriously there's a group in Pergamum who chose to refuse to refer to their beliefs as teachings of Balaam. Balaam is one of the most dishonorable, despicable characters in all of the Old Testament. Uh, So the Lord is, is throwing shade on these false teachers and giving them this title. No one would choose that for themselves. But Christ sees a strong parallel between Balaam and the teachings and lifestyle of this group in Pergamum. Now, the other man from the Old Testament that was mentioned in this verse is Balak. He was the king of the ancient people Moab during the time that God rescued Israel out of the land of Egypt, and they were in the wilderness before they entered into the promised land of Canaan. During that time, King Balak had seen how God had defeated the enemies of Israel who stood in their way, and so he hatched a plan to try and avoid suffering the same fate. And Balak thought, hey, maybe I can find a prophet of Israel's God and hire that prophet to convince this God to curse his people instead of blessing them. And so somehow he finds the prophet Balaam and he waves some money in front of him to get him to come along and try his plan. And Balaam agrees to take the cash and goes along with Balak. But to King Balak's great dismay, Balaam never once has a curse from God to pronounce on Israel. Rather... God repeatedly gives Balaam words of blessings to speak about and over his people Israel, despite Balaam's sinister motives. And the Lord even gave Balaam words of judgment to speak against Moab. So this plan backfired for sure. But then as we're reading about this in Numbers, all of a sudden, the next thing we read about after the story of Balaam is Israel committing sexual immorality with the women of Moab and participating in idolatry with them and sacrificing to their gods 
and then a plague of judgment breaks out amongst the people, and 24,000 die that day. What? And we don't actually find out till later that actually Balaam was the mastermind of that plan. It's as if Balaam said, well, apparently I can't accept your money and make God curse his people, but I can tell you a way that perhaps you can tempt Israel to invite the judgment of God upon themselves. Go have some of the Moabite women invite the Israelites to participate in your pagan worship rituals, to engage with them in sexual immorality, which is part of the worship rituals of your gods. And if you're able to successfully tempt Israel into idolatry by way of tempting them to sexual immorality, well, then this will certainly displease God and invite his judgment upon them. And Balaam was right about that. The Lord God is holy. And so he cannot be paid off by Balak or cajoled by Balaam, but by the same token, because God is holy, he will not tolerate this rank idolatry amongst his people. Later in Numbers, we're told that's exactly what happened. Numbers 31, 16. Behold, the Moabite women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously, treacherously against the Lord. And that's the detail back in verse 14 of Revelation 2 that Christ mentions in a word of correction to this church. Did you catch that? Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And just like Balaam taught Balak these things that led to idolatry and sexual immorality, so too there are some in Pergamum whose teaching is leading to idolatry and sexual immorality in the church. Now perhaps this group is saying something like, you know... Idols don't really exist. There's one true God. And so we can continue to um, participate in the local society and economy and culture, even though we may have to go to the pagan temples sometimes and eat food offered to idols at pagan worship feasts and the festivals of the city. You know, that requires engaging in sexual immorality at some level. But, but we're not really worshiping the idols in our hearts when we're there. We're still Christians after all. Or perhaps they were even more explicitly turning the grace of God into a license of sin by saying something like, well, we're forgiven, so it doesn't really matter how we live. It's okay to have it both ways. Okay, uh, You can follow Christ and still pop in on the occasional uh, pagan meal. Now, maybe this is hard for us to imagine that there were people in church doing this. In our day and age, we don't have to try that hard to avoid eating foods offered to idols as part of a city feast involving pagan idol worship. But in first century Pergamum, this would create a lot of difficulties for someone to refuse to engage in this kind of stuff. It would require a pretty extreme disengagement with normal society all around you. All of the trade guilds, all of the festivals of the city, the culture was full of these kinds of practices. Uh, consider 
um, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, okay? This illustrates how much a part of the culture these two practices were. All right, so the apostles and the church in Jerusalem gather, and they, they uh, render a judgment, as guided by the Holy Spirit, for these brand new Gentile Christians. And here's the advice they give them. It's actually pretty simple. They say, well, as it turns out, you don't have to be circumcised to follow Jesus. Just abstain from food sacrificed to idols and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Acts 15, 28 and 29. You, you can read that almost exactly. So to say no to these idolatrous meals and pagan celebrations and superstitions and the sexual immorality that went with them would mean you would have to withdraw from the culture around you in really significant ways ways, in really costly ways. And some in the church of Pergamum were compromising. And they were not only compromising with the world, they even developed teachings to justify these worldly compromises, and they were propagating these teachings in the church. If it is hard to find a professing Christian in any church in America today, even in any so-called church in America today who is compromising with the world in these exact kinds of ways, although I'm sure this is probably still happening in very similar ways around the world, even so, it would not be hard to find professing Christians in churches in America this morning who are compromising with the world in many ways, who are participating in an ongoing way in various kinds of sinful worldliness. That's just part of uh, the warp and woof of our broader culture. Maybe because it would be costly not to somehow. Maybe because it's just easier to compromise than take a stand for Christ. Maybe because they secretly love sin just like the world. Might we find this worldliness in our church? Uh, when I talk about professing Christians who compromise with the world, who participate with the broader culture in sinful and worldly ways, am I describing you? Have you developed doctrines, maybe, to justify why it's okay for you to do this? Have you convinced yourself? Have you tried to convince someone else that being a friend of the world doesn't put you at odds with Jesus? You are wrong. And Jesus calls you to repent this morning. Like in first century Pergamum, the modern, secular kinds of idolatries in our culture also have various kinds of sexual immorality associated with it. And like in first century Pergamum, there are professing Christians who not only participate in worldliness and sexual immorality, like the culture in various ways, but they've also developed teachings and adopted beliefs to explain why it is actually okay for them to do so. It's not hard to come up with illustrations, is it? Of churches even in our own town, 
And Jesus rebukes the church in Pergamum. You have some in your church who believe and live like this. And that, that's a double-edged rebuke, isn't it? Certainly it's a rebuke to those who are engaging in these sinful practices. But these words of correction are mainly meant, it seems, as a rebuke to the otherwise faithful in the church who would allow such people, allow such teachings, allow such conduct to continue unchecked in the church. So Christ rebukes the whole church. The teachings of Balaam are in your church. By not dealing with the worldly compromisers, the whole church is compromising. They are compromising in a different way. They are compromising the purity of the church of Jesus. And verse 15 continues this word of correction along very similar lines. Look at verse 15. So also, or so in the same way, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we're not given enough information to know exactly what this teaching was, but it's clearly associated with the teaching of Balaam that is described in the previous verse. Same kind of thing, if not the same thing. It's instructive for us to look back at how the church in Ephesus responded to this very same group. Look back at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for how they respond to the Nicolaitans. He says, yet this you have, you've got this going for you, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The faithful in Pergamum are permissive of something Jesus hates. Even if the majority are not themselves embracing this teaching, as seems to be the case, they are allowing others in the church to do so. So in a sad irony, they're willing to take a stand in the world for the name of Christ, but they're unwilling to take a stand in the church. They hold fast to Christ's name in public, but then continue in fellowship with those who hold fast, same verb, to false teaching teaching that justifies sinful, worldly compromise. Now, you may uh, be able to understand, maybe quite easily, how such a state of affairs could come about in a church. Right? It's clearly wrong to deny the name of Jesus in the world, like Peter did. I don't, I don't know the guy. I'm not a Christian. But... Shouldn't we embrace fellow professing Christians who just believe a little differently than we do? I mean, these people aren't the ones who are persecuting us for following Jesus. They come to church with us. We like these people. They're our friends. Well, we re- need to remember that this is not, first and foremost, our church. This is Jesus' church, and Jesus desires a pure church. Jesus wants his faithful witnesses to be part of a church that cares about her purity. A fellowship mixed with compromisers is not the witness Jesus wants for himself in the world. After speaking this warning of correction against the church in Pergamum, Jesus gives them an attendant word of warning Look at the word of warning with me in verse 16. Therefore, repent. 
If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus offers one simple command. Repent. Repent. Did you pay attention to the parties that Christ addressed in this verse? And the difference between them? Christ says, you repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them. I will come to you to war against them. All right, so the call to repent is first and foremost not for those who hold the teaching of Balaam or the Nicolaitans. The call to repent is for those who are in the church who are permissive, overly permissive of worldliness and false teaching. Of course, a part of what it means for the church to repent is to call these false teachers to repent themselves, right? And then if they will not repent, to exercise church discipline, to break fellowship with them, to, to not allow them to continue in the church. So the faithful need to confess as sin to God and, and then turn away from their willingness to compromise in the church. If Balaam is cozy in your church, you need to repent. Your church needs to repent. Consider now the warning Christ attaches to this call to repentance. Pergamum needed to repent of their peaceful fellowship with these false brothers because Jesus had declared war on them. Verse 16, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So the judging sword of Christ's mouth is aimed against the devil and the nations, and it is also aimed against these who are in the church, the worldly compromisers and the false teachers. I think this indicates that these are not true Christians. Christ says they belong in the group of people who will be judged by the sword of his mouth. You know, Revelation 19 cuts humanity into two groups. There are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there are those who fall by the sword of Christ's mouth. And it's not right for both groups to be represented in the fellowship of the church in Pergamum. We want sinners to come to church, unrepentant sinners. We're all sinners. But we want even unrepentant and worldly sinners to come to church. And we want to call them to repentance. We want to love them. But we don't want to link arms with them and say, everything's okay between you and Jesus, just like everything is okay between me and Jesus. Isn't this amazing? Though the church in Pergamum isn't caring like they should about the purity of the church and doing something about it, there is someone who's caring about the purity of this church and will do something about it. It is Jesus. Jesus will not let Balaam stay in any true church of his. He says, if you will not handle this like you should, I'm coming to you. I'm going to visit your church. I will come to you soon. I will visit your church with judgment upon them if you will not Repent. Now, we don't know what this particular judgment of Christ would have been like exactly. 
what form it would have taken or, or what form it did take if the church didn't repent. We're not told. But it's interesting, it seems to me, that part of the motivation for this church to repent should be their love and concern for these other professing Christians. Love and concern for the false teachers. Love and concern for the worldly compromisers. They need to repent of their uh, nonchalance over error and sin. They need to repent so that Christ wouldn't come to make war on them. You, church, need to repent. So the steps of church discipline are for the good of the one being disciplined. We let them know things are not okay between them and Jesus because of how they're living in an unrepentant way or because of what they're believing or teaching. And we do this out of love to try and shield them from the judging sword of Jesus' mouth. Church discipline is a mission of mercy, a rescue mission. And it seems that Christ motivates them along those lines. It also seems, though, that the well-being of the whole church in Pergamum is at stake here. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's not just the well-being of these false teachers and worldly compromisers that's at stake. And I say that mainly because the next verse offers a word of promise for the one who overcomes, or the one who conquers. Now, we've mentioned in previous sermons, the one who overcomes or conquers is the one who continues in repentance and faith in Christ, just continues to be and live like a Christian. Now, in context, the one who overcomes is the one who continues in repentance and faith, as demonstrated by heeding the exhortations of this letter, actually responding to these warnings in faith and in repentance. So the Christians in Pergamum must be overcomers, to inherit the promises associated with eternal life that are in the next verse. And to be such an overcomer, they must demonstrate they really are people who repent of sin and trust in the Lord. In this context, too. So they must deal with the unrepentant and unorthodox who are spots in their love feasts. To do so is just what it means for them to keep following Jesus as a Christian in their particular set of circumstances. And if they do, what sweet promises from Christ are theirs. You can see them in verse 17. Christ ends with a word of promise. Look at it. 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Christ promises his overcoming people three things, hidden manna, white stone, a new hidden name. Manna is the bread that came down from heaven, which God used to miraculously sustain Israel while they were in the wilderness So talking about the story of Balaam already puts our mind in that time period. Christ uh, brings back another aspect of that same era in Israel's history to use as a symbol. Psalm 78, 24 calls manna the grain of heaven. So for Christ to speak of hidden manna, 
for the overcoming church represents the heavenly feast, a meal in heaven, uh, the one that's coming to celebrate the union of Christ with his people and their eternal life together that will follow. Revelation 19 talks about this, the same chapter that talks about Christ judging the nations with the sword of his mouth. Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. These Christians in Pergamum, who refuse to participate in the pagan feasts of their culture, and they refuse to eat food sacrificed to idols, have a different and better feast to look forward to, where they will commune with Christ and celebrate the way that He sacrificed Himself to save sinners as the Lamb of God. I think the manna is called hidden here to represent how this heavenly feast with Christ is something yet to come. Uh, in the future, and so it's currently unseen, not yet revealed and experienced. Do you look forward to this day? Does it sound sweet to you? Those who do not compromise with the world and will not tolerate compromisers in the church do so because they have already RSVP'd, as it were, for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and they want to keep themselves pure for Him and look forward to hidden manna, to a supper with Christ in glory. And the white stone that Christ promises to give his people is very much related to that promise. Uh, the promise of a white stone is most likely a symbol drawing, that draws upon the broader uh, Greco-Roman culture that Pergamon was a part of. For one, white stones were used to declare parties innocent in court settings. So part of the promise of Christ here is that persevering Christians will hear at the end a verdict from God the judge, not guilty. And they'll hear a verdict better than not guilty. Righteous. Righteous. Because of the work of Christ that takes away our sins and causes God not to remember them against us. Even more strongly, I think, the promise of the white stone represents admission to the heavenly feast of Christ. White stones were used in that day as tokens for entry to celebratory banquets. So the winners of the games might be given a white stone after their victory that would serve as their ticket for entry into the feast of celebration. So again, this promise stands in direct contrast to those who are willing to compromise and, and go to the idol-worshiping feasts of the day with its sexual immorality. The faithful bride of Christ has a different feast to look forward to. The marriage supper of the Lamb, eternal life with Christ our God. I think the white stone is likely a symbol of both of these things, admission and acquittal, because it is only those whose sins are forgiven that are given a seat at Christ's table. So the hidden manna, the white stone, both have reference to this promise of feasting with Christ. And what about this last promise? A new name. A new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, since the name is written on the stone, 
It represents personal interest, personal entrance into the feast of heaven, personal communion with Christ. We go to the marriage supper of the Lamb not as nameless, faceless, unknown blob of humanity. We, We personally commune with Christ, and He personally knows each of His people. It is a new name which represents a new and deeper intimacy of communion with the Savior, which we all will experience who enter into eternal life. There will be a depth of fellowship with Jesus that none of us have ever known or tasted before. This new name also represents a new status, identifying us with God and with Christ. It communicates a finality about our belonging to Him and His being with us. And because of other verses in the book of Revelation that talk about us receiving a name, the name of God, the name of Christ, the new name of Christ, I think it's likely that this promise represents uh, that the new name that we don't know that we receive is the name of Christ. And if that's the case then this symbol also makes us think of the marriage supper of the Lamb as the bridegroom sets his name upon his bride and she takes it as her own. What a great God we have to make promises like this. Why would we want to compromise with the world when God offers us this kind of fellowship with himself. And we can't taste and see the goodness of God now like we will then, but we can taste and see the goodness of God now in fellowship with Christ. These overwhelmingly good gifts can be yours. God is willing to give them to you. Yes, he is. He is willing, he is able, doubt no more. You can be saved from the judgment of God you deserve for your sins. You can be saved from the sword of Christ's mouth. And Christ is willing to give you a white stone instead if you will come to him. He will give you a white stone representing pardon from all of your sins and entry into the marriage supper of the Lamb. That supper can be for you Because you can be joined to Christ as part of his bride. If you will just trust him as your Lord. And if you will trust in the work that he did on the cross as your only hope for salvation before God. And then follow him. Trusting him. In whatever that means in your particular set of circumstances. And then Christ will set his name on you now. And he promises to give you this new name in the end. And starting now, and then ramped way up when you enter into eternal life, and then forever increasing for eternity, you will personally know how good it is to know God. And for those of us who do already know God in truth, let's pray. Let's pray now that God would give us grace to be a pure church, and that God would give us grace to be faithful witnesses for Him. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us grace 
to care like you do about the purity of the church. I pray you would give us wisdom to be like Christ and how we care about the purity of the church. At, at, on the one hand, not tolerating unrepentant sin, but on the other hand, being gentle and shepherdly and forbearing toward each other, even as all of us struggle against sin from now till our death. God, help us. We want to be the kind of witness that Christ wants for himself in the world. Would you make us more faithful witnesses? Thank you for the promise of the gift of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of being a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. God, help us to long for that day more so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.